Some of our hymns are obviously written for a church militant. They just have that drive that we, uh, that we recognize, in which we recognize um, the call that Christ has placed upon us. Let me invite you now to take your copy of God's Word and open it and turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. We're taking a few weeks now to uh, think about a few of these psalms. And this morning we are in Psalm chapter 2. Here now, as an act of worship, God's holy and inerrant word, which he has caused to be written down for your good. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For... His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. O Lord and God, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for all that it reminds us of. And Lord, how we need these reminders. We ask that You would make us now faithful hearers of Your Word. And we ask that you would cause it um, to bear fruit in our lives. For Christ's sake, amen. Um, Probably most of you, if you have uh, lived through the age of Disney animation, have watched the film Beauty and the Beast. Um, There's a song uh, sung by uh, uh, one of the men there, the evil man by the name of Gaston. Gaston is the guy who goes in search of the beast. He's going to put it to death because he loves um, Belle. And there's a song that he leads the townspeople in singing uh, as they're getting their pitchforks and their torches together to go to the castle and slay the beast. And there is one line out of that song that I always thought was really weird. And it says this, Gaston sung, screw your courage to the sticking place. Screw your courage to the sticking place. As I was looking into that, just out of sheer curiosity, I found that that line actually comes from Shakespeare. And he is quoting there from Macbeth. And the idea there is 
now is the time for courage. And fellas, you need to find a place where your courage is going to stick. Whatever that's going to be, Whatever that is, it's going to be a place where your courage finds firm footing so that it can't be pried loose, hence screw it in, don't nail it in. You need it now. This psalm, even though here it isn't attributed to David, Throughout the rest of the New Testament, where it is quoted, it is attributed to David. So think with me now for just a second of, here we have King David. And often, when there was a transition in power, you think from Saul to a new king, David, this transition becomes an opportunity for any foreign king. If you want to invade and overtake another kingdom at its weak point, when do you do that? In the transition period. And so here is King David, newly anointed perhaps, hearing on the outskirts of the kingdom all of the sabers rattling. Where will he find courage? When he observes all of the enemies on his borders, and they are many, and then turns and sees the kingdom of Israel, where will he find courage? And what we find is David the king found courage by thinking about the rule of a coming Messiah. In the Hebrew canon, the Psalms didn't occur in the middle. So most of us, when we learn Bible drill, we've got Bible drill coming up, you think, stick your finger in the middle of your Bible and open it up, and it's probably going to fall open to the Psalms. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, if you stuck your finger in the middle and you opened it up, it wouldn't open to the Psalms. Um, you'd probably get Jeremiah. Instead, the Psalms are placed toward the end of the Hebrew canon. In fact, the book that precedes the Psalms in the Hebrew canon is Ruth. And so you get through what we call the little book of David. Why? Because at the end of Ruth, the whole point of the entire book is that genealogy at the end where we learn that Boaz begot Obed and then there was Jesse and then we have David. Ruth is the little book of David then and in the Hebrew canon leads directly into the big book of David. And the Psalms are a poetic reflection on the life of Israel. They're divided usually into five books. Why? Reflecting on the five books of Moses. And so we go through in many ways the history, the life, and also looking ahead for Israel. The Psalms are looking ahead to the glorious future of the people of Israel. Ruth reminding them, listen, of a a foreign woman who comes and brings Israel herself back to a Redeemer. You think of Romans chapter 11 and the Gentiles provoking Israel to jealousy. Bringing them to Christ. 
Psalm 2, in particular, is a messianic psalm. Why do we say messianic? Well, because it has explicit references to the redemption of a coming Messiah. It demonstrates the role of Christ in our redemption. And in that role, specifically here, what gave David comfort is David there sitting perhaps on his throne or or as you and I might do, lying awake on his bed with all of these thoughts rolling through his mind. I've got this, this to do and that to do and this worry and that worry and this anxiety. The house of Saul still lives. Will they come after me? What quieted David's heart is this fundamental principle. In the end, the Messiah wins. He will conquer all of our enemies. For David, this psalm represents, uh, it is a vision. David looked out to a future reality, something that, that was coming for us. It represents a present reality. Something that you and I have tasted in part all ready, and whose promises are in the wings. We're going to look at the psalm in four points. First, we'll notice that Christ sees the nations. Then we will see that Christ is enthroned on Zion from verses 4 to 6. That Christ receives His inheritance, verses 7 through 9. And then lastly, that Christ will return as a judge, verses 10 through the end. Notice, first of all, with me then, verses 1 through 3, that Christ sees the nations. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The the psalmist begins here, David begins by asking that question that so many of us ask all the time. Why? Here's the reality. I've got people on my border, uh, people raising themselves up against the Lord and against His anointing. They're plotting together. You've got kings who who in some sense uh, hate each other, but in this they are united against Christ. And so the psalmist asked, why? Do you ever find yourself asking that question? Why do men rebel against God? The one who made them? The one who every day sustains them? The one who sends the rain on the wicked and the righteous together? He's gracious. He has manifested His profound and infinite love by sending His own Son to die for you who shed His blood, who's built an ark of infinite, omnipotent power to preserve you from the wrath to come. And yet we find men saying, I will not have it. I hate Him. 
whom I need. But we find that the psalmist doesn't answer the question, does he? He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't tell you why. You know why that is? There's no good reason. There is no good reason. These men who rage against the Lord, who gather themselves together so that they can find mutual comfort in raising their fists, at the end of the day, there's, there's no good reason. But we know why it is. They hate Him. Do, do you notice the contrast here? Turn back over, if you, if you have to, to Psalm 1. And look at with me at verse 2. Remember the blessed man? We, we, we talked about what he doesn't do, and then we look at what he does do. He delights in the law of the Lord. You see that? The, the law of God to the godly man is not bondage, it's freedom. But look at the wicked. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. We will not have it. The godly man loves the law of God, meditates on the law of God. The wicked man hates it. He has rebellion imprinted in his heart from the very beginning. He rebels for rebellion's sake. This is, this is if we observe the course of redemptive history, we see it over and over and over again. We could go to Genesis chapter 6, couldn't we? Where the sons of God are coming into the daughters of men. Seeking to corrupt the seed of the woman. In Genesis chapter 11, we see where Nimrod found a, a nice place on the, in the plain of Shinar and said, let us build a tower. We're going to build it up into heaven and we're going to overthrow it. We see it in Exodus chapter 1 where Pharaoh said, kill the Hebrew babies. We see it in the captivity Hold your finger here and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. Even those who came against Israel were pounding their chests, puffing themselves up. Israel is the people of God. And so the Lord says against the prince of Tyre, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 2, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You think of, turn over one chapter to Ezekiel 29. Verses 2-5. to five. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams and stick, that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your streams. 
You shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food. Think of Nebuchadnezzar who caused a great idol to be built to himself. These men proclaimed themselves to be gods. And yet notice going back to Psalm 2, the psalmist asks this question so appropriately. Did you notice it? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Um, one of the favorite games for my son and me lately is to turn on, as it Carl Roberts, uh, Kung Fu Fighting, and take up sticks, one of which was made for me by Joe Schwartz, and to beat each other. <laughs> But he will never win. Because one, my reach is way too long. And two, he has a terrible form. (laughs) But we do it because we love each other. The kings of the earth plot in vain because they fight against an omnipotent God. He knows their plans. They go into their rooms and think that they're plotting secretly, but the Lord sees. In fact, every moment He upholds them, they have no existence apart from Him. And they plot in vain. And you and I need to be reminded of this. How do we take courage when it seems as though everyone is rattling his saber against those who profess faith in Christ? How do Afghani Christians find confidence? Where do they screw their courage in? Into Christ. Into this overarching promise that their plots against you are vain. We notice as well that Christ is enthroned on Zion. Christ not only sees the nations, verses 1 and 3, He knows it all. He sees what they're doing. They're not in secret. But Christ is enthroned on Zion. We find verses 4 to 6. He sits in the heavens. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. The Taliban does not face God. No one who plots against the Lord phases the Lord. Listen to me. There is no moment in history where the Lord has had to step back behind His curtain and say, Let's change the plan. There is no plan B. All that is coming about from COVID to the Taliban is the plan of God. Set down before the foundation of the earth. Notice what the Scriptures say here that God laughs at them. I I used to work alongside a, a, a pastor who said that God has a sense of humor. Um, Maybe. 
he certainly laughs at those who oppose him. And this sort of laughing is not the laughing of, he's not jolly. His belly is not shaking as he's laughing. This is the, jo- this is the laughing of scorn and mockery. You can do nothing. In fact, the psalmist goes on and he says, the Lord, look at this, holds them. The Lord holds them. We teach our children to sing about the fact that God holds the whole earth. We teach our children when we say He's got the whole world in His hands. That means even those who rebel against Him, if He forgot them for a moment, they would cease. They cannot speak apart from His empowering They have nothing that is not their own. And the Lord rebukes them. Then the psalmist says in verse 5, He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. The moment that God speaks to them, they are overcome with terror. He doesn't terrify them with a manifestation of His glory. He terrifies them by His Word. And you think about the end, the presentation of Christ coming in judgment whose tongue goes forth like a sword to consume His rebels, those who rebel against Him. And notice how He ends. The Lord speaks to them and what does He say? All of you on the edge of Israel rattling your saber in this transition period thinking that you will overthrow my people, here is the message. My king is established on my holy hill of Zion. It is done. Come against him if you will, but you will not prevail. The rebellion of men we find here is not a problem for Yahweh. It only fulfills his Plans, turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 7 and 8 of 1 Corinthians. Paul speaking here, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory, none of the rulers, verse 8, of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What God is pointing us to here is that, that God, before the foundation of the earth, appointed His Son to give His life. And He appointed the day and the hour and the moment of His crucifixion. So when all of His enemies came against them and they were plotting in themselves how they would overthrow this One who called Himself the Son of God, in everything they did, they only fulfilled the Lord's plan. Listen, here's how we think about that. What is the Taliban doing? Fulfilling God's plan. What is every enemy of Christ against the church doing fulfilling God's 
plan, do you not remember the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ? It will be victorious. There's no plan B. God disciplines earthly empires. Sometimes He turns them over to themselves. He allows them to fulfill the plans of their hearts so that by those plans they are overthrown. And you see the foolishness and folly, the vanity of the plans of the world. We learn that the ascended Christ, notice, sits in the heavens. He is seated on Zion, making His enemies a footstool for His feet. He is ruling with absolute sovereignty over all creation. You must not forget that. Christ sees the nations. He sees His enemies. He is seated on Zion. Thirdly, Christ receives His inheritance in verses 7-9. to I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me, and I will make the nations Your heritage and the ends of the earth Your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here we have a picture of David at the Davidic covenant. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David had a dream. He saw the splendor of his own palace. He said, I want to make a palace for the Lord. I want Jerusalem to be God's place. And he said to Nathan, I want to build a place for God. And Nathan came back to him ultimately and said, you will not build a place for God. God will build a place for you. And promised him that his son and his son's son and his son's son's son into eternity would rule on the throne of Zion, Jerusalem. And so David is recounting this to himself. You see, in light of all of the rebels against Israel, he remembered the promise of God who said to him, You said to me, Lord, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, but we know from the New Testament testimony that this applied in an ultimate way to whom? Christ. Turn to Hebrews. as the writer to the Hebrews is talking about the glory of Christ and the revelation of God through Him, he recounts Psalm 2 in verse 5. Hebrews 1.5 For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you, 
Now, as we have this reference to Christ, there are two things that you should notice about it. What He is and what He became. What He is from all eternity is the very Son of God. There's been no point in His existence where He has not existed as the Son of God. So when you go back to Psalm 2, it says, You are My Son. In a point in time today, I have begotten you. He became the Son of God in a new dispensation enclosed with flesh of a man and the soul of a man. This is not then a reference to a created man who then became a God-like person. This is not a reference to a man who was then adopted as a Son of God. He is the Son of God forever and forever stretching back into eternity past. And therefore, He is imminently appointed to receive the Davidic throne. David and his sons were only ever a placeholder of Christ. Christ is the Davidic Son whose throne is eternal. So then you can see this picture coming forth. Ruth ends with the production of the Davidic Son. And then we go into the Psalms which, which in this eloquent way sing of the coming of a Messiah all the way to the end of the Hebrew canon in 2 Chronicles which references the freedom of the Davidic Son coming forth to take His throne. Which enters into what? Matthew. And the genealogy of the Davidic Son. As a King and the Son of God, Christ has an eternal inheritance. A divine right that He will come forth to claim. And what is it? The strip of Middle Eastern land. Notice what the psalmist says. His vision is much, much bigger. Ask of Me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Ultimately, in an ultimate sense, the peace of Israel is not foreign invaders on the border. It is an inheritance of the whole earth. So that when Solomon dedicated the, the, the temple, he prayed and said, when the foreigner looks to your temple Forgive him. Israel was intended to be a witness to the nations, and the nations are Christ's. The nations belong to Christ, and he will conquer them. David thinks about the completed messianic work of the one who is seated in his resurrected body in all of his glory and splendor at the right hand of the Father. A present reality. But he, he won't stay there. In 
Not only did the eternal Son of God become the Son in a different dispensation at a point in time, born of the Virgin Mary, but brothers and sisters, friends, He will step forth again at a point in time. The first time to redeem His people. The second time to judge the earth. So fourthly, we see Christ will return as a judge. Verses 10-12. to Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the picture of the end. Christ will return. And He will return in judgment. So David speaks to every other ruler, to Sidon, to Tyre, to Egypt. He says to them, stop raging at the Lord. Praise Him. Do homage to Him. Bow down to Him. When He extends His hand, you kiss it. You worship Him. He is reminding them of this very important principle. Christ does not share glory. He is a jealous God who is jealous for the glory of His name. He will not give it to another. Therefore, all you usurpers, be warned. Kiss Him now. Or be judged by Him. Calvin, on this text, observed, let this therefore be held as a settled point. Screw your courage to this point that all who do not submit themselves to the authority of Christ make war against God. We think about that on a personal level, don't we? Where... Am I declaring war against God? Where are you refusing to submit to Him as Lord? He doesn't share glory. Those who yield in obedience, therefore, to wicked tyrants, join them in their rebellion. You and I, we can't deceive ourselves. Do not deceive yourself that somehow all men will receive mercy. Somehow, there's a wideness in God's mercy. Somehow, God is going to be merciful to all men. We remember as we reflect on this psalm that mercy for some men is in this life only. Did you notice how this psalm closes with a parallel idea to Psalm 1? Go back to Psalm 1 and look at the end, beginning in verse 4. The wicked are not so, 
but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And you can think of Psalm 1 as applying in a general sense. Those who reject Christ in a general sense, the common man, your way is certain. You will be doomed. You will be consigned to an eternity of judgment. Like the husk of a seed, you will be driven away. But lest you think that you're powerful, you're not a common man. You're a powerful man. You're the king of men. You're the leader of men. You have resources. God reminds you as well that your end, if you are a rebel, is just as certain. Dear Christian, the psalm would speak to you as well. To all of you who have kissed the Son, to all of you who recognize Christ's glory, who are submitting to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, confessing your sins to Him, seeking with all of your might to live to His glory, I remind you that the rod which Christ will wield was resting upon His back for you. The blows that are coming to all the wicked were given to Christ for your sake so that Isaiah 53 reminds us that He has borne our wounds. What wounds? What wounds? What chastising? What griefs? The grief of punishment. He has borne for your sake. But we remember that apart from Christ. There is wrath coming. Those who cause terror in the land of the living will go down in shame. Ezekiel 32. Tyre and Egypt were merely preludes, pictures of the final judgment of rebellious and earthly kingdoms. There is only one kingdom that will remain. Which is it? The kingdom of Christ, which as a little stone will grow into a mountain that covers the earth. Christ is a king. Think of this. Christ is a king who offered himself to rescue us from our rebellion. As we observe the Lord's table when we take it, he publicly assures you of the promise of eternal life. But we must also remember that that broken bread and blood are also representative of every rebel when Christ returns in judgment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we read these words, we 
are reminded that at least two things are appropriate to your nature. Mercy, and you delight in mercy, and you are humble and kind and gentle with every man who has lived, is living, or will live. You feed us, you provide clothing, you've given us life, you uphold and sustain, and you are merciful, and you delight in your mercy. We do not drag mercy from you, but you pour it out. It is also appropriate to your nature that you should be a judge. You are a judge. We are your people because you have subdued us to yourself. You govern and preserve us, and you are conquering all your and our enemies. And Lord Jesus, as we think about your coming, and, and we as your people, your brothers and sisters who, who also have a right to your inheritance, the inheritance which you have earned, we remember that it will be a day of blood. It will be a day of wailing and gnashing of teeth for all of those who have raised their fists against you. So as we pray, we desire the coming of that day. We desire the day when your kingdom will be fully consummated. We worship with trembling, knowing it will be a day of pain, eternal pain for many. So we ask, Father, that as we observe this, you would give us two things. Courage. Courage to stand boldly for Christ. Courage to yield to Christ even in, in light of the pressures that are upon us to conform. And also fear. Let us worship with trembling when we come before you. Trembling at your power. Trembling at your beauty. Trembling at your glory. A glory which we only behold because we are clothed in your righteousness. We ask it in your name. Amen.